Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. If it's screenwriting competitions you're after, well, ScreenCraft offers the best around. Their competitions are specific to genre and judged by Oscar-winning filmmakers and top literary reps. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code FRIENDS at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hey everyone and happy Halloween. My name's Al Horner and you're listening to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows, returning after a short mid-season break. It's great to be back and man, do we have a fascinating conversation today to come back with. 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. That is when the world will end. In October 2001, this was the grave warning issued by a six-foot demonic rabbit named Frank to a then-teenage Jake Gyllenhaal, setting in motion the plot of one of the great Halloween movies of our time. Donnie Darko was a time-twisting sci-fi curio about an emotionally troubled teenager. After narrowly escaping a bizarre accident involving a falling jet plane engine, Donnie begins to experience strange visions. The result was an emotional, unknowable gem of a movie that's still inviting scrutiny and analysis today. The film initially struggled to find an audience in the aftermath of 9-11, then gradually became this cult obsession. 21 years later, fans across the world continue to attempt to unravel its mysteries. But the thing about Donnie Darko, in my experience, is the more that you try and unravel this film, the more this film unravels you. That's the level of brain-bending existentialism that writer-director Richard Kelly, my guest today, was operating at when he wrote the film aged just 24. It's pretty spectacular. I had the pleasure of chatting with Richard, and in the conversation you're about to hear, we break down in detail the mysteries and meanings of all the most intriguing motifs and moments in Donnie Darko. Discover the origins of the unsettling rabbit, Frank, who shares an unlikely connection with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hear how Y2K concerns and election time anxiety influenced the film's atmosphere of dread, and find out why the true evil in Donnie Darko is not Frank, but the puritanical streak that runs rampant in suburban America, both then and now. Oh, and you'll also probably want to listen out to the end for some intriguing details about a Donnie Darko sequel that's even more ambitious, even bigger than the first film. Richard's actually been in contact with Jake Gyllenhaal about developing that. So yeah, maybe Donnie's story isn't quite over yet. Be sure to listen out for that. A massive thank you as ever to our supporters on Patreon for helping make this episode possible. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. We really do appreciate your support. As I mentioned at the top of this, it really is just so nice to be back. And well, you guys have waited long enough for a new episode, so I'm going to stop talking. Let's just dive into it. This is the amazing Richard Kelly discussing the first draft secrets of Donnie Darko. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Scripts Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. 
Richard Kelly, so great to have you with us. We're talking, of course, in mid-October, fast approaching Halloween, which is a time of year at which movie fans the world over revisit Donnie Darko as this now quintessential Halloween text. Is October inextricable from Donnie for you as its creator, the way it is for fans? Like, do you find yourself reflecting on that character, his story, and everything that you accomplished with that film once Halloween nears? Or after 21 years, have you managed to kind of find some distance between the two? Well, I think the film is definitely always linked to Halloween and always linked uh, to the, the month of October because uh, it's just so much part of the, the story. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I sat down and I wrote the script in October of 1998, believe it or not, uh, only 10 years after the film takes place. Um, uh, I, I was literally just like just finishing college, getting out of college at USC in, in Los Angeles. And so the month of October was just sort of integral to the, to the story and, um, and the sort of demarcation of time and the, the sort of, uh, the countdown of the 28 day timeline in the film is, is very much sort of wedded to the, the countdown to Halloween and in the climax of the film. So yeah, I, you know, every time October 2nd rolls around, I'm just sort of reminded of this, um, this sort of uh, imaginary anniversary in the film where, where the jet engine comes down and uh, the sort of uh, piercing of the space time continuum uh, kind of occurs there. And so um yeah, we're sort of in that limbo uh, tangent universe right now, I guess. Uh, but yeah, every year it just keeps coming coming back to me that this is a Halloween film, for sure. Yeah, it must be strange and beautiful to be two decades on and still be kind of, you know, hearing from people caught up in the hypnotic effect of this incredible story. When you see people kind of posting their photos online, you know, dressed as Donnie or Frank from a Halloween party, when you see debates raging once again about the film and the many ways that it's interpretable, um, what, do, what do you put it down to each Halloween as there is this revisit of, of Donnie Darko en masse? Like, is, is there an explanation you've landed on for the incredible longevity of this film? Well, uh, having um, digested this thing, created it, obviously I created it in a very fast, uh, emotional rush, a rush of um, kind of uh, inspiration. But having digested it along with uh, the audience and with fans for 20 years, I've kind of just discovered that there's a, a real expansive um, architecture to the story that uh, kind of plugs into a much bigger world and a much bigger universe. And there's this whole world that sort of exists uh, in the peripheral of the film. And I think people kind of re-engage with the narrative over and over again, and they sort of can plug into accessing a much bigger world, I guess. And I've been doing it as the person who created this thing. And, and I've sort of been exploring it and, and going deeper and deeper into it. And I'm just starting to, I guess, see that beneath the initial blueprint of the film is just <laughs> dozens, dozens more blueprints, I guess. And so <laughs> it, there's that element to it, which is like the architecture to it, right? But then I guess then there's just the style and then, then there's the music and then there's the, the sort of um, the humor and just all of the sort of uh, aesthetics that I guess are pleasing enough to people that, that um, it gives them this sort of glossy polish over the architectural kind of uh, underpinnings of the whole thing, you know? So um, I don't know. I think any, any uh, story um, thinking like an architect, it has to have a really strong foundation and really strong uh, blueprints to it. And I, and luckily I think the film has those. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of where it all begins, but um, you got to have the, the aesthetics too. You know, um, cards on the table. It, it really was such a formative film for me growing up. Like I discovered it at roughly the same age that Donnie is in the film. And it just had this electrifying effect and managed to bottle so many emotions that I was experiencing at that time. So like, on paper, it occurred to me in preparation for this conversation that like the further I get away from that kid I was when I discovered Donnie Darko, that teenager on the brink of nihilism, the less I should be able to relate, the less I should love this film. But instead, every time I come back to this movie, it feels more vital to me. And uh, yeah, I was, I was wondering if that's a common thing you hear and whether you think like the valuation of this film and kind of all your work, really, given the swings that you love to take as a storyteller, do you find that valuation has grown among fans as we've moved into an arguably more 
uh, risk averse, maybe slightly more homogenized movie making landscape? Well, you know, um, revisiting this thing all these years later, you know, um, it, the world has changed a lot in, in 20 years. Um, and there's something about the film, I think, being a period piece. You know, Donnie's a little bit older. The character's a little older than I was, you know, in 1988. But there's obviously a lot of me in the character, and a lot of my childhood in the story. And so there's nostalgia in looking back at it. But because the movie was sort of created in a time warp, we were in the year 2000 making a movie about 1988, you know. So we were already in this strange time warp. And then um, with everything that has happened since the movie was made, it just we've all kind of I've grown up with the movie. We've all sort of grown up with it. And, you know, you never know how things are going to age, but I don't know. I think we look back at it through like the lens of, of middle age. You know, I'm in my forties now and I look back at it through this lens of being a, a middle-aged man. Um, and <clears throat> yes, it feels different, but the movie is still the same. It's still the same damn movie that's existed, but we've all kind of changed and grown and everything. And so I don't know. I think that adolescence is a, part of us we're all children um our bodies age and we get old and um we pass on but we're still children um inside you know uh, we'll, we'll always be children we'll always have that adolescence inside of us um and uh i don't know i, I there's just something about um about the film that um, maybe it's timelessness, but it's it, maybe it's also just uh, these emotions never, never they never um, they never leave us. You know, we we just we just hold on to we we hold on to the to these things forever. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to I, I'm still trying to solve this thing and not solve it. I'm just trying <laughs> to continue to make sense of it, I guess. And and as I do with all of my work, um, you know, these things, these things remain unfinished, I guess is the best way to describe it. <laughs> that uh, phrase you just used of, of trying to make sense of this thing still to this day, uh, that leads me really nicely onto something I was wondering. You, you mentioned a moment ago that, um, you know, this thing flew out of you pretty quickly. You described writing it in a rush almost, um, or, or the, it came out of you in a rush. You wrote the script in a month, You've described it being the culmination of 23 years of being alive. And then, of course, the, there was this month period of actually writing the thing. Now, typically, when, when I'm able to write that quickly, it's this, on the very few occasions that's the case, it's this eruption of my subconscious almost. And I'm, I'm being led by instinct and intuition, kind of not unlike that motif in the movie of the kind of translucent beams pulling people from place to place. Was that the case for you then? When you when you describe this thing kind of rushing out of you, when you describe like still trying to make sense of it to this day, is there an element to which, you know, when you were writing Donnie Darko, it was an explosion of pure id over kind of ego and superego? Yes, it was definitely from the id. But uh, being the child of a scientist, you know, my dad is literally uh, was a rocket scientist, you know, who worked for NASA. And so so w with my id comes this sort of, um, it's, I, I keep coming back to the architect that I could have been in a different life. I wanted to be an architect. So um, looking at that October calendar that Donnie is looking at in the movie, that's me as a, as a 22, 23 year old screenwriter writing this thing that the sort of the id came out with um, a focus on strong architectural blueprints, you know? So like, I think the best writing comes out in a rush like that. I think that you shouldn't start writing until you've got it all mapped out in your head. And I, I do a lot of outlining now, but back then I wasn't a disciplined writer. I was a very just emotionally explosive kind of uh, creator, you know, um, which is a good thing, but it, it, it's, it's not disciplined. But I, I, I think the discipline just came out of, again, having this sort of uh, architectural um, background in the sense of that I could build the movie on this timeline, you know, on this, this month of October where the whole story plays out, you know. Um, and so, you know, I had this idea of um, the jet engine that falls mysteriously and the voice that draws Donnie out of bed. And then I had this 28 day timeline, you know, and I just I wrote those numbers out. And I thought, okay, is that the lunar cycles? Is that like a menstrual cycle? Is it a, uh, is it a, has something to do with the tides, the ocean? You know, what is this? And, but it's, okay, it's going to land right around Halloween. And so that's the sort of the architecture of the whole thing. And then 
I just started mapping it out. But yes, it, it came from the it and it came from a lot of just childhood memories and experiences and just this sort of maelstrom of things from my childhood. But um, again, there was a design element to it. And, you know, that's my recommendation to any writer. Like, don't start writing your screenplay until you've got the blueprints, at least mentally, like, figured out. Like, you should really have a pretty strong indication of how the movie is going to end before you start writing the beginning. Uh, you know, that's kind of my thing. Because um, once you have that, then it just comes flooding out. The floodgates are open, you know, like don't start writing until the floodgates have opened. Um, Cause so much of writing is just the mental thinking and the thinking and the mapping out and the brainstorming. And the, that's the kind of excruciating part. But um, when you're actually typing, you want the floodgates to be open. And, and so that's, that was, that was um, 23 years of water building up. And then the, the flood, you know, like the, <laughs> <laughs> like the visual effect that I could ever afford to do in the school where I wanted a whole massive wave of water to come crashing into the, into the school. And uh, we never got the visual effects I wanted, but that, that was a kind of a metaphor for a lot of things. But one of them being the, the floodgates of my mind opening up. <laughs> All right, let's do the script apart $1 million question. Richard, how do you sum up your first draft of this movie? Like I'm aware it was 140 pages. So considerably longer even than the director's cut ended up being. Yeah, what were the main differences between that initial vision for Donnie Darko and the movie that it became? You know, it, it's still, it, the original draft was pretty damn close to the to the finished film. And a lot of the, you know, the the additional scenes in the director's cut, you know, some of which are, are a little extraneous. You know, the director's cut is sort of paced a bit more like television and it's a bit more novelistic and it has a bit, more of the mythology and it's sort of like hinting at a much, you know, kind of bigger uh, kind of world, but it's, it, the original script was pretty damn close to, to everything that you see. Um, you know, there was just a little bit more um, additional. It, it was probably uh, nowadays it, people would look at it and say, Oh, this is written a bit more like TV because in TV you can take your time and, you can have a, a, a lot more character supporting character development. You know, you can spend a little bit more time with Donnie's parents. You can spend a little bit more time with uh, Karen Pomeroy, the Drew Barrymore's character, and a little bit more time with the teachers and the other people in the, Donnie's community. You know, it's still Donnie is the center of this movie, but there's, you know, there's scenes where Donnie uh, is the subject of everyone's conversation, but you know, you're with, uh, the therapist, uh, Catherine Ross, her character, and you know, so you, a little bit more of the supporting characters have a bit more uh, screen time, you know, and it's a it's a bit more novelistic, I guess. Um, but you know, when you're when you're making a movie for the theatrical experience, um, you know, it needs to be a little bit tighter, and the, the the theatrical cut is is much probably more satisfying to watch, you know, in a, in a theater. But you know, kind of now we're in this. Um, world of streaming where you have these more novelistic uh, uh, narratives, much longer sprawling narratives that you can digest in, in pieces and stuff. And so, um, but yeah, the, the first draft was probably just kind of written a bit more with the, the, the extra sort of, you know, first draft kind of fat, you know, um, but everything was there. Um, I think the one kind of character that got lost, there was an art teacher character where Donnie's in art class and he's, there's a lot of drawings that you see in the movie that I, I did those drawings. I grew up, you know, um, doing a lot of drawing and illustration and I have a visual arts background. And so there was a bit more of like a little bit more of an exploration of Donnie being an artist and being able to draw and the conversations with his art teacher about what the drawings mean. And, you know, he had a drawing of the rabbit and stuff. And so it was a little repetitive because he has those similar con uh, conversations with Drew Barrymore's character in the English class. And, so it was just like one too many teachers. And I remember when we were budgeting the movie, you know, when you're 24 years old and you like sign your life away, <laughs> sign all the, I signed all the rights away to this thing. I was 24 years old. Um, I was in the writer's guild, but they, they made me do it non-signatory to the writer's guild. So I, I don't even get residuals on this movie or anything. So like I signed my life away. And one of the things that they do when you're budgeting a movie is like, can you cut this? You know, can you cut that? Can you, can you, can you get rid of this? Can you con consolidate that? You know, and um, <clears throat> I was pretty damn stubborn. Like they, they wanted me to get rid of like the liquid uh, spear tendrils. They were like, don't, that's too, 
said, why is that necessary? Get rid of those. I'm like, no, those are necessary. So I fought, but the, the one thing they were like, can you cut the art teacher? You know, can you get rid of the art teacher? We don't want to have to pay. We want to cut a cast member, you know, cause that's money, the budget. They always want you to cut cast members down, you know? Uh, so the art teacher got cut and we actually had an actor who was going to play him. And it was sad to have to inform him that his character would be had actually cast the role. Um, <clears throat> anyway, but other than that, it was, it was, you know, there's, there's stuff I wanted to do at the end. Um, I never got to do the visual effects I wanted for the sort of exploding. We, we got the interior of the exploding plane pretty well done with Mary McDonald and the, you know, that's shaking a camera and, and some light and stuff and some smoke, but it looks really effective, but I never got to do like the, the plane ripping apart and the, and the jet engine, um, uh, how it, it, you know, the lightning striking the plane and the, the jet engine ripping off of the plane and ripping apart and the jet engine falling down through the time portal. And that all of the, all of that CGI was supposed to be this spectacular kind of like, you know, the right, the way that Christopher Nolan would get to do it. You know, I, I was 24. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to give me, there were, they were like, this movie's insane. We can't believe anyone is letting you make this, you know? <laughs> so I wasn't going to get my Chris Nolan uh, exploding uh, plane and jet engine falling through a rift, a time portal. I wasn't going to, to get that, um, you know? So yeah, I, I, I got pretty, as about as far as we could get with it being a, you know, a 24 year old who they were giving, um, a budget of four and a half million dollars to, to make his first film. That's a, an incredible luxury. And the fact that we even got to make the film was like a victory in and of itself. So, you know, um, very proud of what we were able to get on screen. You know, again, I, I never got the, the CGI that I felt like we needed. Um, but you know, this is my first film. <laughs> you know, Richard, like other movies of yours are, are quite obvious, like uh, time capsules in a way. Like Southland Tales, you can really feel the kind of post 9-11 anxiety kind of coursing through it, or certainly I've always interpreted it that way. What do you think you bottled about late 90s America, either consciously or subconsciously, as you wrote Donnie Darko? Like there's a, there's a line that Drew Barrymore's character gets in the film about losing kids to apathy. And, you know, it was a time in which teenagers were increasingly nihilistic and unknowable and inscrutable to older generations. Like, was that something you were trying to explore and peel back? Were there any kind of like social elements of that time that you were pouring into this script, either kind of, as I say, consciously or subconsciously? You know, it's funny that you bring up that line that Drew Barrymore has about the kids not um, the kids having to figure it out these days because the parents have no clue. I think it's something close to that is the line. I had the wonderful um, honor of, of meeting Francis Ford Coppola when we were putting this movie together. And Jason Schwartzman was originally going to play Donnie. And That's Jason right, yeah. is this lovely, lovely man. He, I owe him my career in a lot of ways because he really got behind this script when everyone thought that it was just a writing sample and he really got behind it. I think Jake would say the same thing that because they're childhood friends, they grew up together and that we both owe Jason Schwartzman a great debt for getting behind this movie. And he arranged this wonderful meeting with Francis Ford Coppola and Francis, I'll never forget. He had a, the script in a binder. We were at American Zoetrope in the Miracle Mile area of Los Angeles. And he slid the binder across the grand uh, conference room table at American Zoetrope. And he had a line of dialogue circled with a pen. And he says, that's what your script is about. That line right there. And it was the Drew Barrymore line about, about <laughs> parents having to figure it out these days or the kids having to figure it out these days because the parents have no clue. And that's, his, that's what Francis Ford Coppola said what my whole script was about. And, and he was right in so many ways. Um, um, and, you know, again, that's one of those, those lines of dialogue that comes from the id, I guess, you know, we see it now, now that I'm the older generation, I'm in my forties and we look at sort of kind of generation Z, we call them zoomers. And, and we, there's a lot of like conflict between, um, you know, I'm on the young side of gen X, I'm sort of close to the gen X millennial cusp, I guess, but, you know, we've got millennials, but then we have zoomers and we look at these the conflict between the generations and the, the zoomers, you know, saying, okay, boomer, you know, the, the, the people, <laughs> the generations mocking each other and stuff. I, I just, that never goes away. I think that's a, a tale as old as time, you know, um, you know, 
back in the the Viking, you know, the Vikings were mocking the the Zoomer Vikings. <laughs> I don't know, like the, the, in, in medieval times, there, there, I'm sure there has been generation intergenerational um, conflict. Uh, but but I think that it has something to do with technology and the way that our lives are now being so aggressively kind of documented by technology and everything is recorded, everything's online and, and all of our thoughts are barfed out in these sort of grotesque social media channels and stuff. And so I think those conflicts between generations are becoming much more um, raw and sort of exposed and kind of uh, granular in their sort of uh, <laughs> obnoxious uh, uh, back and forth, you know? And so, but I don't know. I mean, like you look at, John Hughes movies and stuff like I was maybe riffing on John Hughes quite a bit when writing this. You think movies like The Breakfast Club and um, Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and like, you know, all those movies had that kind of teenagers sort of um, pushing back and and against the their parents generation. And, and so that's just a tale as old as time, I guess. And it just it just seems like it's coming into sh- sharper and much more granular focus probably because of social media and because of uh um again all of our nonsense is just broadcast 24 7 now (laughs) in granular detail on smartphones and, and and social media um sites and stuff but um yeah yeah um but now i'm now i'm now i'm the in the parents' generation, so um, I get to be—I get to be the one that everyone makes fun of, that the young kids make fun of. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that that would be the line that Francis would pick up on as being the the pure distillation of this movie. The the one that stuck out for me on my most recent kind of uh, read through the script was the uh, the interaction about Donnie Darko having a superhero style name, and because uh, you know it, it, it's true this is a story about a boy who sacrifices himself to save the world there is a superhero element to this film to what degree were, were, was that something playing on your mind as you uh kind of initially set out on this story obviously you realized at some point that there is a superhero quality to it and you worked that line into the script but yeah at, at what point were you kind of like viewing this story through that lens it was always there i i named him donnie Darko, the name just popped into my head. And I'm like, it's kind of a comic book superhero movie, you know, under the surface, that that's under the surface, you know, because there's, you know, if you look at the the tangent universe of the, the 28 day timeline, that's, you know, written the number written on his arm and the countdown of the apocalypse, that's this sort of dream world, you know, um, and um, Donnie does things that are kind of superhuman that you see throughout the movie, whether it's the, the foresight you know, that he has, but also, you know, swinging an ax into the, the head of a bronze statue, you know, um, uh, the, with the leading to the flooding of the school and the, you know, the, even, you know, when he's able to, to carry Gretchen, the, the shot of him carrying Gretchen's body home at the end, like that's a kind of a nod to, um, a superhero, a Superman type image, you know, whether it's, you know, Superman carrying Lois Lane or any superhero carrying like the, the damsel in distress, you know, in his arms, like that's not something that, um, someone should be able to do normally. And, and, and then as the, the movie progresses, you realize you're in this sort of dream world, um, and yeah, there was definitely, um, all of that sort of beneath the surface and that maybe this was some kind of like kind of origin story, um, in a way, but you know, it was, it was just sort of like beneath the surface of the blueprints kind of like on a subcutaneous level, you know, because I was really more interested in exploring the sort of character dynamics and the, um, the sort of, uh, all of the sort of cultural conflict in October of 1988, you know, all the, the conflict between the students and the teachers and the sort of all the themes and all that. So, but the superhero stuff was sort of just, you know, right there, very present, very important, very part of the, the mechanics of the whole thing. But, um, you know, only just scratching the surface of, of that kind of that element to it, but it was definitely there, you know, um, and I was never a big, you know, I, I can't say that I was ever like a big comic book person growing up. I was much more of like a Stephen King kid. You know, I was reading Stephen King and Philip K. Dick and, and a lot of, a lot more science fiction novels, um, as opposed to, you know, reading comic books, but I, I was aware of the, of the, the superhero connection without question, um, that Donnie was, 
sort of evolving or becoming uh, that in the over the, the course of the movie that he was um, uh, being elevated in, into a much greater spiritual kind of place. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more, or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything, and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and, dare I say, beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You, you mentioned that like the com- you were really interested in the dynamics of that particular month in history, that the conflicts that were going on. One of those conflicts in the film is like in a sort of election that sort of sits in the backdrop of this movie and kind of has this ambient hum that kind of fills the entire plot. That's a real kind of recurring element in your movies. Like, you know, it comes up in Southland Tales again and... Uh, yeah, I'm curious, like, uh, what you find so rich about election time as a backdrop and whether there was like a formative experience of an election as a kid that set the wheels in motion for that part of your signature as a filmmaker, Richard. It's funny. We shot this movie in August of 2000 is when we started shooting this film. And believe it or not, when we were shooting this film, you know, Bill Clinton was still our president. That's how long ago it was. It was his final, <laughs> his final year of his presidency. And we were on the eve of an election in the United States um, that would elect uh, George W. Bush. And the consequences of that election um, soon became very uh, apparent. Uh, So we were, when we were making the film, we were on this cusp of change. And it was, we felt as we were making the film that there was a seismic shift kind of about to happen. And we were very young, you know, Jake was 19 going on 20. You know, I was just turned 25, I think. So we were very young. Um, And in a lot of ways, Jake felt like he was my age or older. Just he was like, in in a lot of ways, he was more mature than I was having grown up in Hollywood. And he'd seen it all. And he'd been on movie sets since he was a little kid. Here I was from Virginia, you know, trying to prove myself as a director, you know, um, just out of college myself. And so, but... I, we were aware of the of this seismic kind of shift happening um, in, in our country, and in the, in the, these elections have major consequences. And so, looking back at 1988, it was almost like, okay, well, the the 1988 election had major consequences to the 2000 election because you're looking at father and son and this political dynasty and these political dynasties going head to head, you know, and and we're still dealing with it, you know. Um, that these elections have major, major consequences. And so, I don't know, we were kind of looking back, you know, and we didn't know how things were going to unfold. You know, we had, you know, we didn't even really know how the 2000 election was going to play out. It was still August, you know, it could have gone either way and look how close that election was, you know, Um, (laughs) but we just knew that there was something in the air, right? It just felt like there was something we were, you know, we were entering, you know, a new century. Uh, it, it was, it was, remember Y2K, you know, um, but we had just, I don't know when that, does the new century, did it begin in 2001 or 2000? You know, there's this argument of like when it actually, we were in this sort of 
2000 was like this crazy, um, very consequential year, but it just happened to be marking the, the division, but, you know, um, uh, the division between two centuries. So we were just in this kind of very substantial moment in time. And we were these young kids, like trying to make sense of it all. Right. And so, and again, this is all before 9-11. And then after 9-11, it just sort of retro- retroactively made me think like, oh God, like, what does this all mean? How does this all connect to, to this um, devastating tragedy that um, has occurred, you know? And, um, you know, I'll never stop trying to make sense of it, you know? But, um, you know, these are the formative events of our, of our young adult, of our adolescence for a lot of us in our young adulthood. And, and it's something that we'll just continue to try to make sense. We're still trying to make sense of it to this day. That's really interesting that you'd mentioned Y2K because, of course, I remember, you know, around that time, the, one of the big concerns was there would be planes falling out of the sky. So I, I did wonder whether there was a literalism to, to this film as a sort of product of Y2K anxiety. It's funny how like Y2K ended up kind of being this big nothing burger, right? I guess it was like <laughs> a lot of hype. You know, a lot of people like we're going to we're going to charge your company $500,000 to come in and protect your computer systems from Y2K. I don't know if all people spent all this money, you know, maybe it was money well spent. I'd have to go back and and see how how grave a threat Y2K really was, you know, but it just it seems like <laughs> some of those threats now and what we've experienced and what we've endured and the the, horror, the horrible things that have happened since then in our world, it just seems like, wow, is that all we were really worried about was something like <laughs> as innocuous as Y2K? You know, um, you know there's a nostalgia there. But again, at the time we were, the stakes were very high for us. And again, when you're young, you look back at how trivial things were or the things that got you all riled up and how trivial those those things were. But I don't know. It was a it was a much more innocent time in a in a lot of ways, and uh, we uh, we were certainly worried and we were paranoid, but we were also filled with hope and promise, and 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 um, we were trying to make a statement. You know, we really were trying to make a statement, and I'm proud of that, that we did that. Um, there's always pushback. There's always people. <laughs> there's always people in Hollywood who are like. Stop making statements. Stop, stop pushing people's buttons, you know, just be, stay in your lane, you know, uh, make a, make a dumb horror film, you know, that that's what they want, uh, you know, but I, I don't know. That's not what I'm ever going to do. To dive into the script itself, Richard, um, you know, there are a few things that always surprise me when I return to this film and yeah, they're there on the page. For starters, I always forget the levity of this movie. Like the early scene around the dinner table where Donnie and his family are kind of bickering. It's so funny. There's there's a hilarious conversation a few minutes later where Donnie is discussing with his friends the inner sexual workings of the Smurfs community. Um, Yeah, so funny. I always forget that there's that humor kind of bristling beneath the surface of this otherwise very emotionally charged, very complex film. Another thing that always surprises me that I'm kind of reminded of in you when I read the script is for all that complexity that we've discussed, there is actually, uh, you know, there are, there are simple things happening from a screenwriting perspective in some regard. Like, you know, people always stress the importance of finding your story, a sense of urgency, a sense that we're culminating towards something, uh, a ticking clock. And Donnie Darko really has like the most effective ticking clock. You have this uh, countdown to the end of the world initiated by Frank, this man in a in a rabbit costume, if he indeed is a man. There's been other speculation. I've been uh, watching your interviews, listening to your interviews for 20 years now and witnessing your protectiveness uh, about the kind of ambiguities of this film, the ways it might be interpreted. So to any degree that you're comfortable answering this question, who was Frank to you? And where did that idea of this countdown to the end of the world come from? As I say, it's such a complex film, but that is such a simple and effective screenwriting 101 device that you've employed there. First of all, um, everyone like, li- likes to ask, is Frank evil? And the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is, de- is definitively for me, absolutely not. Um, I believe Frank is a benevolent uh, mentor. Is, is a, there's a shapeshifter there. There's a, a herald. There's a mentor. There's all the, the Joseph Campbell archetypes of the different uh, mythologies of Frank is kind of so many of those things 
you know, he's a trickster. He's a shapeshifter. He's a, he's all of them all mixed into one. There's, there's all the colors in the, in the Joseph Campbell rainbow or in Frank. And, but he is a benevolent figure. Uh, he's not evil. The, the, the mask is a, is a, is a misrepresentation you think, you think that it's an evil mask or it's demonic. It's meant to trick you into thinking that, but there's a benevolence to, to Frank. And there is a, um, you know, Maybe a bit of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi there in there, you know, kind of uh, in sort of mentoring or ushering Donnie into a into a higher supernatural realm in a lot of ways. So um, and in, in terms of the, you know, the countdown, it just um, again, I'm always very, very cognizant of place and time whenever I'm writing. Now, time, the timeline of Donnie Darko is very definitive. The place is a very is a very nebulous, mysterious thing, you know. And when you're watching the movie, you're like, "Where does this take place? Is it Virginia? You know, we put Virginia on the license plates, but it's not quite Virginia, you know. Um, it's this sort of dreamscape, um, you know. And and if you asked me, you know, at the very end of the movie, when we're back in on October second, and, and Donnie is uh, deceased, um, you know, that in my mind we're not in Virginia. That that we're we're in Southern California, uh, you know, that we're in, uh, Long Beach where we shot the movie. Uh, and you, you know, you <laughs> yeah, see you're at the Aero cinema that's Santa Monica. Well, you see all, all these little pieces of greater Southern California, whether you're in the San Angeles Crest mountains or you're saying, you see very recognizable Southern California. In my mind, it, the, the, the twist at the end of the movie is that you're really in Southern California and that this dream world was sort of a, a mis representation of, of Virginia, that it was a misdirect, you know, and I was obviously grew up in Virginia and I traveled to Southern California to become a filmmaker and going to go to college at USC and, and, and sort of the, the bridge between those two planes. But, uh, uh, you know, with that said, you know, the countdown, you know, to the apocalypse was, it was, was meant to be sort of rooted in, in math and rooted in a very, um, you know, the way that the, the days of the calendar are sort of doled out in terms of screen time. And, you know, it's funny when we were editing the film after Sundance, you know, we had a very, very disruptive, upsetting Sundance premiere because the movie was just, no one knew what to do with it. Everyone was just like, what? It was just, it was not marketable. It was, it was just, we had all these strikes against us in terms of the distribution apparatus of Hollywood. They did not want to distribute our movie. They did not want to mark. They didn't know how to market it. We were in rough shape, you know, but the movie got kind of rescued by Aaron Ryder. And then um, who had just produced Memento and, and he brought in um, Christopher Nolan and his wife, Emma, his wonderful wife and producing partner. And after they screened the movie at new market and they supported the movie and they looked right over at the new market executives and they were like, you should buy this. You should distribute this. And, and they were very supportive and I owe them a great debt for, helping get this movie distribution. Um, one of uh, Emma's suggestions was Richard and for the title cards, you know, when you see the title cards pop up, they're very integral to the story and advancing the suspense of the narrative forward. You know, when you see those title cards pop up, very important. She's like, you should put in parentheses, how many days remain? And it was a wonderful note that she gave. And we, we listened and we did it. We added the parentheses where to explaining exactly how many days remain. It's a reminder <laughs> in a sort of kind of tongue-in-cheek way. There's 14 days until the apocalypse. <laughs> you know, it's just a reminder in these parentheses. But it was a, a wonderful note, you know. Um, and we also we also did one little additional, not a reshoot, because when I don't like the word reshoots, because that implies that you got something wrong or that you screwed up and you have to redo something. It was additional photography. We did one day of additional photography. And this was a, a Chris and Emma note too. Uh, was during the Mad World montage when we've everyone uh, has awakened from the communal dream, and the, there's been a rupture in the space-time continuum, and the, the artifact has fallen, and and Donnie has surrendered to the artifact. Uh, everyone's waking up in bed, and you hear the Mad World song, and you see everyone. We did not shoot James Duvall and his Frank the Bunny mask in its early incarnation. We didn't shoot that. As the and we I we didn't include him in the wake up montage for whatever reason we just didn't have time or it didn't occur to us to include him but here he is one of the most essential enigmatic characters of the whole thing you need to see 
James Duvall and Frank and the origin of the mask in the Mad World montage. We needed that. It was a wonderful note. And so, you know, they scraped together a little bit of money and we went to Panavision and the soundstage and we set up this little bedroom set and the easel and the draw all my sketches of the drawing. And we had the, the original uh, metal mold of the rabbit. And we had brought in James Duvall and you know, he touches his eye and we did this elegant shot where we pan down and we land on the mask and it tied it all together. It tied the whole Mad World montage together. And it was this incredibly important shot that we did right, you know, uh, several months after Sundance before the movie uh, was headed, you know, towards uh, a modest, modest theatrical release, you know. Um, and then 9-11 happened uh, and everything just went down the, you know, all the marketing, all the, the ground, you know, the grassroots marketing and, and no one even wanted to think about anything. You know, it was just like it, the, we were lucky that the movie was able to even hold on to the 50 some theaters that they had booked. We thought we were going to lose the theaters. We thought they were going to cancel the release, you know, but they, they had already spent the money to book the theaters, you know, and they had already paid for some newspaper print ads, you know, back when people paid for those, you know, so they just had to go let the movie be released, you know, so it just kind of went out into the, into the ether, um, you know, in October, on October 26, 2001, the movie was released, um, you know, to a terrible per screen average of $1,100 per screen, you know, <laughs> I'll never forget the, the message, the voicemail I got from my agent uh, about the per screen average of the movie and how depressing it was, and, uh, you know, that the movie had just sort of um, had such a poor, soft release, you know, but I think it went on to make like over 500,000, you know, with no marketing, like not zero marketing spend, you know, um, but, you know, these things, they have legs. <laughs> these stories never die. So you mentioned a moment ago that Frank is not the evil in this film. I think there's an argument to be made, and certainly my view of the movie has always been, that the evil in Donnie Darko, it, it's kind of almost like the Christian fundamentalism that's running through this picket fence community. Um, Patrick Swayze's character is the embodiment of that, obviously. And the hypocrisies, the malevolence that can be contained within that particular strain of, um, of Puritanism. There's some really purposeful intercutting on the page and in the movie between Donnie burning down a building and Donnie's sister taking part in this pageant where she and her friends are dancing in this almost sexualized way that the community is lapping up. There seems to be something that the film is trying to say in this regard about America then, America now. We're, of course, right now back in this time of books being banned by schools in the US, which is something that um, crops up in this movie. Talk me through what you were trying to express or what, when you look back at the movie, you can see now that maybe your subconscious was trying to express. Um, yeah. What, what was that whole subplot of the movie about Richard? Yeah. Well, I think that the Jim Cunningham, the Patrick Swayze character was sort of, um, you know, uh, one of the, maybe the primary, you know, reveal that he's like the, one of the big villains of the, the story that it's not the rabbit. It's not that Frank isn't the, the villain of the story. It's the Patrick Swayze character. And that the Donnie sort of exposes him and, you know, burning the house down and exposing the sort of uh, the evil beneath the surface there. And I guess maybe the way that that kind of thematically ties into the sort of uh, the idea of exploitation of uh, young women or young girls and the idea of, um, you know, the way we push uh, young people into show business and the way that uh, young women in particular can, can feel exploited or have their lives turned upside down, you know, by Hollywood and the sort of exploitation uh, that exists in, in Hollywood. Um, and, you know, having Drew Barrymore as a producer on this film and having Drew sort of watching and sort of with empathy and in judgment at, at the sparkle motion, you know, dancers um, and what she experienced as a young woman, as a, as a child star and the sort of horrific experiences that she endured and survived and triumphed over, you know, the, the triumphant story of Drew Barrymore overcoming um, so many of those um, experiences that she had that were um, really devastating uh, experiences. And so, I don't know, I think we were maybe trying to sort of, you know, capture all of that in this sort of, you know, just I was remembering like talent show comp competitions in high school and cheerleading competitions and, you know, competitive cheerleading moms. And <laughs> that was all just, it's all real, you know, you, you see, um, no matter what part of the suburbs you grow up, if you look at America as one gigantic suburb, you know, with different sort of um, 
income levels or you know, some houses are nicer than others, you know, but uh, it's all just a gigantic uh, landscape of suburban life. You know, there's a, a lot of dark, sinister things uh, that exist beneath the surface and beneath the facade. And so, yeah, we were definitely trying to explore that and maybe the idea of exploitation and, um, uh, you know, adults exploiting children or abusing children. I mean, that's about as horrific as it gets. Um, and that just seemed like a logical kind of, you know, if, if, if it's a misdirect that the rabbit is not the real villain of the story, that he's actually this sort of mentor or shapeshifter or trickster, or all of that, a supernatural kind of guide, uh, mentoring Donnie into a supernatural realm. And then the, the, the true villain is this sort of like, um, uh, self-help guru who's, who's hiding this, this about the, you know, the most evil thing possible, you know, uh, you know, beneath the, beneath the surface, you know, and then Donnie sort of gets to expose that and burn that down, I guess, is sort of a, uh, that Frank is giving him benevolent instructions, I guess. Um, so yeah, it was just sort of the logical conclusion of my mind. If I, who's going to be the real villain of this movie? Okay. Someone who exploits children, you know, what's, what's more horrific and villainous than that, I guess. And you mentioned at the top of this, the importance of, of identifying your ending before you embark on the writing process. And the ending of this film is just so perfect. There's every single element of this film may not be explained, but it comes back and it has a rhyme to it. And uh, yeah, there's there's no kind of loose threads in that regard. It's also so like emotionally impactful. How did you arrive at this ending? What's happening in this ending as you see it, Richard? And um, yeah, were there, were there kind of other things you explored en route to to working out that this was the right way to end the film? Well, there, there was an enormous amount of discourse and frustration when we were trying to put the movie together. People were very troubled by the ending. They were bothered by it, but they were sort of like, that was the whole reason why we got the meeting to begin with is because of the ending. They were fascinated by the ending, but they had questions and they had comments and they, some people wanted more clarity some people were confused and frustrated and angry and they passed and they said, no, I mean, I remember we had this one hilariously awful meeting with um, uh, this company and, and it was the, the woman who had financed the movie Anaconda, the big snake movie with Jennifer Lopez yeah. <laughs> and Owen Wilson and Ice Cube. She had made that movie and we went and met with her and a bunch of other financiers and she was going to maybe pay for the movie, but she had read the script and had spent the 20 minutes before we got to the meeting arguing with everyone about the ending. And she was angry. Like the, the ending made her angry. And so she started just like yelling at us and she just got up and stormed out of the meeting to go pick up her daughter at ballet class. She wasn't going to finance the movie because the ending didn't make sense to her. She could not make sense of it. And she didn't like the ending. And it, this was a, a no go. The, the Anaconda lady was not going to finance Donnie Darko. <laughs> yeah. So God bless her. And I wish her well. Um, so, but it was, the ending was a, was a frustrating thing for people because uh, Donnie does not get out of bed at the end. The engine kills him. Um, why? That's the big question. Why didn't he get out of bed? Why did he surrender to this jet engine? Why is he laughing? You know, um, that's the big question about this movie. Um, and the, and it's the frustrating thing about it because you spent these 28 days with Donnie and he's, you know, been exposed to this supernatural phenomenon. You know, you, you kind of, you want him to survive this and you want him to, to, to emerge, you know, you, you know, part of me was like, you want him to get out of bed and dodge the jet engine. Um, but then you think, oh wait, he already did that. You know, at the beginning, he already was drawn out of bed. You know, so maybe he's been exposed to something much bigger than this world and that he's, you know, so it just felt like he had to go, that he needed to die at the end. But I, I got to tell you, having having killed three protagonists in three movies, it's not easy. <laughs> audiences don't like it when you kill your protagonist. Test screening audiences don't like it when you kill your, <laughs> your, your hero. Uh, cinema scores don't. Uh, come back with high grades when you kill your like it's I, I'm, I've pretty much had it with killing my lead character because it's just it's too hard it's such an uphill battle with audiences and it's just um, you know having done it three times I, I think um, you know it's safe to say in future movies that my protagonist uh, will very likely survive by the end credits but it, you know it just felt like 
it had to have, it, it needed to have this sort of devastating ending and you needed to see the family there devastated at the end. But the important thing is, you know, with my direction to Mary McDonnell at the end and her sort of when she waves at Jenna Malone and the, the young actor, Scotty Leavenworth, who had just been in Aaron Brockovich, he, he played Julie Roberts' son in Aaron Brockovich, the little kid at the end of the movie. Um, and she waves at them and she has this connection and that she has this residual memory of the 28 days. There's something going on with Rose, played by Mary McDonald at the end of the film, where she kind of knows that her son was meant to, to die this way and that he was... He had experienced something transcendent and that she has a residual memory of it. And perhaps because in the dream that she was on this plane that exploded in the dream. And, you know, again, I never got to do my, uh, my Christopher Nolan uh, jet engine ripping from the plane and going to the time portal. But I think Rose sort of experienced that in her dream. And so she kind of knows that her son was exposed to something um, profound and she's sort of at peace with her son's death, like in the PTSD shock in the aftermath. And that's why she's kind of waving. And some people were confused by that moment at the end, but it was really important to me. And I remember talking with Mary, you know, who's this one of our greatest, our finest actresses, um, you know, about that final moment. And it came together very quickly. But right when I saw her wave and then the wave back with Jenna Malone and Scotty Leavenworth there. I was like, okay, that's the final shot of the movie. There we go. That's the final shot. That's it. And um, it's me. It's meant to leave, leave you feeling very sad and emotionally drained, but I don't know that I wanted there to be a sense of a touch of hope at the end with the, with Mary McDonald and that connection with Jenna Malone at the end um, that there was something, there was some kind of purpose or something bigger about Donnie sort of uh, surrendering at the end uh, or sacrificing himself at the end, you know? Um, it just felt like that's the way the puzzle pieces needed to come together. Um, but audiences aren't, you know, necessarily, you know, it's funny, like if you, um, we never really, we never had the money to, Sundance was our, was our first test screening of this movie and it did not go well. Like we were roundly rejected by distributors at Sundance for this, with this movie uh, for a multitude of reasons. Um, one of which was the ending was so disturbing, uh, and sad audiences test audiences, you know, these <laughs> algorithms and these formulas that they, they try to shape your art and make your, your art more audience friendly and more, uh, profitable and, to monetize and, and sculpt and shape your art for audience satisfaction. They, they don't like it when your hero dies at the end. Um, they, that's, you know, that's the, the sort of bullshit we got to deal with as, as filmmakers. You know? So, um, but it just felt right for this movie, you know, um, sometimes the hero has to, has to, has to go out in a, in a pine box at the end, you know? Um, so, but we were able to, we were able to get our ending, you know, uh, I, ne I never got my visual effects, but I got my ending the way I wanted, I guess. You know. The fact that you did kill off your protagonist here made it all the more curious to me when I read in, got a couple of years ago now, I think 2017, that you were exploring a sequel of some sorts that was bigger, more ambitious. Just finally today, can you tell me anything about that project? And um, yeah, whether it's something you're still exploring, whether you think it's something we'll see kind of eventually come to screen. Well, there's been a lot of work done. We've been, we've been under the hood. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we've been working on. Um, there is a much bigger world. Um, there is, there's a lot that has happened since Donnie's departure from Earth. Um, and I would like to think that there's a reason why he didn't get out of bed on October 2nd, 1988 in Long Beach, California. That there's a reason why he surrendered to this artifact. Um, and a lot has happened in the world since October 2nd, 1988. <laughs> a lot has happened since October 26, 2001, when this movie was released in theaters in the United States. Um, a lot has happened in the world. And, um, you know, I uh, sold off the rights to this movie when I was 24 years old to, to get the, the, the blessing and the, and the luxury of getting to direct this film. Um, and I am, I have been working on an enormous amount of uh, material uh, that one might be able to put in the category of, of a, a very, very large scale sequel to this film. Um, so we'll see what happens. But uh, I have felt compelled to do the work. <laughs> uh, the way Francis Ford Coppola, when he slid that binder across that uh, 
that boardroom table at uh, American Zoetrope, um, I saw the fire in his, the gleam in his eye and the, the passion in his eye. And uh, um, so I will always be working on, uh, on this and uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what the movie gods decide. Uh, we'll see what the gatekeepers decide and, and just know that if something does happen, that it will be um, worthy and it will be true and part of the canon and something that is uh, hopefully part of the architectural blueprints of this whole thing, because there's a, a whole lot of them, <laughs> a vast uh, array of blueprints that could probably fill that warehouse uh, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> but there's a lot there. So I, I've done the work and it's been very therapeutic. And so, you know, we'll see what happens, but to be continued. <laughs> Have you spoken to Jake about it at all? Is it something that he could be involved in in any capacity? Obviously, it's tricky with his character, but um, yeah, have you guys been, been in contact? Yes, but let's let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exciting. Whatever comes next, I'm really, really looking forward to it, Richard. I've had an absolute blast chatting with you today. Thanks so much for coming on Script Apart. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>